This morning we are approaching one of the most well-known portions of Scripture, the uh, contest on Mount Carmel in which Elijah calls down fire from heaven. If anyone has any kind of Sunday school background as a child, I'm sure you are familiar with and have heard this story. But what I want to begin with this morning is to ask the question, what prompted the contest between God and Baal? What was its purpose? Why did it take place? And I want us to consider this morning the events that led up to the contest that took place on Mount Carmel. Next week, we're going to look at the contest itself. We will look at the calling down of fire from heaven, etc. But this morning is prelude to all of that. We want to note this morning that the contest took place because of Israel's indecision concerning their relationship to God. They were on the fence, as it were, to whom they should worship. If you look at verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. They were not willing to take a stand at that moment. But what I want us to consider this morning is how did Israel get to such a place as this? How did things so degenerate that Israel is not able to determine who their God really is, whether it's Baal or whether it's Jehovah? What led up to that showdown on Mount Carmel? So we want to consider the state of affairs in Israel and try to better understand the Israelites' confusion with regard to the famine and who it is that they should worship. I want us to see that there's relevance in this passage for us. It's not just a nice biblical story, but there is a message for us in this particular text. We must keep in mind that Israel had been in a long, difficult drought. 1 Kings 18.1 says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So why had they been experiencing such a drought? Was this brought about by Baal, or was it brought about by God? Who was responsible? Who was at fault, as it were? What is going on here? So we need to go back to the meeting that took place between Elijah and Ahab to gain perspective. And since it's been two weeks since we've been in this text, I want to do a brief review about even what led up to that particular meeting. Elijah demonstrates great faithfulness to God in establishing a meeting between himself and Ahab. Elijah is commanded to come out of hiding and meet with Ahab in verse 1 of chapter 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, and now these words, go, show yourself to Ahab. Show yourself to Ahab. That's kind of a particular or peculiar way of telling Elijah that he is to meet with Ahab. Show yourself to him. 
We must keep in mind that up until this point in the narrative, Elijah has been in hiding. And he has been hiding not in cowardice, but he has been hiding at the Lord's command. In 1 Kings chapter 17, chapter 17 verse 2 it reads, And the word of the Lord came to him, that's Elijah, Depart from here, then turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook of Cherith. Hide yourself by the brook of Cherith. And then later, he's going to be sent to Sidon, to the widow, again, in hiding. In hiding. Now he's to come out of hiding. Now he's to show himself. He's, he's to appear. He's to say, here I am. All during that three-year period, Ahab has been out to kill Elijah. If he can find him, he's going to kill him. 1 Kings 18.10, as Lord God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord, this is Obadiah speaking of Ahab, has not sent to seek you. He's been looking all over for you, Obadiah says to Elijah. And again, Elijah's come out of hiding. Go show yourself to Ahab. Not simply send a message, not even simply meet with him, but Show yourself. Make yourself vulnerable. Stand in his presence. Well, Elijah's obedient to the Lord in verse 2, so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. And the interaction between Obadiah and Elijah about Elijah's coming out of hiding is significant. Elijah tells Obadiah to set up this meeting between Elijah and Ahab at the end of verse 8. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Obadiah is afraid that Elijah will not show up because God will whiff him away to safety. Verse 12, as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. You say you're going to meet with Ahab, and then the Lord's just going to take you away, and then I'm going to be left holding the bag. But Elijah reassures Obadiah that Elijah will be there. He says in verse 15, Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. And it's speaking about his vulnerability. He's coming out of hiding. He's going to stand before Ahab. He's taking his life in his hands, as it were, at the direction of God. Ahab could show up with an army. Ahab could command his Death. There were so many things that have, could have taken place that didn't. But what we really want to focus on this morning is the meeting between Elijah and Ahab that takes place. Verse 16, so Abadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And as this meeting takes place, Ahab meets Elijah with disdain. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? You troubler of Israel. There can be no doubt that the trouble Ahab had in mind was the severe famine 
now taking place throughout the land. And Ahab blamed it all on Elijah. And I would submit to you that that is very understandable. Why Ahab would be blaming Elijah for everything that had been taking place. It is clear that there's a direct link between the drought and Elijah. The drought had begun the very day that Elijah had announced it. 1 Kings 17.1 Now Elijah the Tishbite in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain three years. So this drought came in association with the prophecy that Elijah gave. And furthermore, Elijah had claimed that the rain would not return except by his word. Except that Elijah would command it, it would not rain. First, first Kings 17, 1 says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither be rain nor dew three years, except by my word. Except by my word. Unless I call for this rain, it's not going to come. So Ahab holds Elijah responsible for the famine that was taking place in the land. To Ahab's mind, this meant that Elijah was to blame for the troubles of his kingdom. He blamed the messenger. But in what way had Elijah caused the trouble in the mind of Ahab? I think that's very significant. In what way had Elijah caused the trouble in the mind of Ahab? Uh, John Woodhouse, in his commentary on 1 Kings, I think is very helpful in providing us some insight, and this is what he says, and I quote, Under Jezebel's influence, it is more than likely that Ahab believed Elijah had provoked the wrath of Baal. The god of rain had withheld the rain. And that was to blame because Elijah had opposed Baal. And Elijah was the chief culprit. So Elijah was guilty of offending Baal. Baal was the god of rain. And it had not rained for three years, yes, because God, Baal, in his anger and being offended, withheld that rain from the nation. It's Elijah's fault for rebelling against Baal. But what I want you to see this morning is that the drought itself was not obtaining the outcome that we might think. That is, Ahab and extension the people were not repenting as a result of God sending the famine. It had not rained for three years, but Ahab is not repentant at all. He doesn't change his stripes. 
He's still looking at Elijah and saying, you're the problem here. This is all your fault. Nor was it at all clear in Ahab's mind or even in the mind of the people as to what is actually happening here. Is this Baal or is this God? Who's doing this? Why is this happening? Who should we be following? Who should we be believing? That is the background to this contest where he says, how long are you going to hold between two opinions? How long are you going to sit on the fence? How long are you going to be indecisive about who's really in control in the nation of Israel, Baal or God? Elijah's response in verse 18. And he, that is Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. Okay, so now Elijah says, I'm not to blame, you're to blame. You have. But Ahab was not to blame alone. Verse 18. I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house. So not just you, Ahab, but your forefathers. (laughs) Those that went before you. The evil kings that preceded you. They and you are responsible for this drought happening. He, along with the kings that were before him, were to be blamed because they had forsaken God's commands. Look at verse 18. He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, and here's the reason, because you abandoned the commandments of the Lord. This has happened because you have forsaken, you no longer follow God's commands. The you of verse 16 is plural. You, plural, meaning Ahab and the kings before him, and by extension, literally the whole nation of Israel, had not been following God's command. The very first command in the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. They had forsaken that command as well as a myriad of commands that God had given to the nation of Israel. Instead of having no other gods before him, they followed a plethora of gods. For notice it says in the end of verse 18, because you have abandoned the commandment of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now here Baal is in the Plural for Baals could also refer to a number of different gods that were associated with Baal worship. Baal was one among many gods in the whole construct of Baal worship. There were gods over different things. Baal was a, a god of rain, he was a god of fertility, but there were other gods that were associated with the whole umbrella of Baal worship, if you will.
So Elijah says it was a refusal to submit to God's authority and to bow before his ways. And that was what brought about the famine. So what perspective should the Israelites have had in this whole discussion as to this drought and the things that were taking place? How were they to know? How were they to understand what was happening here? Well, the initial drought came about because the people of Israel were disobedient to God's word. This should have been known and understood. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, I'm going to start at verse 16. These are God's words through Moses, through the children of Israel, as they anticipated entering the promised land. God is preparing the children of Israel for entrance into the promised land. Deuteronomy 11, starting at verse 16. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So, do not serve other gods, do not worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain. This is a fulfillment of what God said he would do if the children of Israel forsook him and worshipped other gods. It was announced before they had even entered the promised land. So it's easy to say they should have known, they should have understood. They are these horrific, disobedient, hard-necked people that blatantly reject the word of God. I'd like to bring just a slightly nuanced view of that. Now, keep in mind the difficulties of ascertaining truth when you're in the midst of a circumstance. They are in the middle of a flood. I mean, uh, they are in the middle of a drought. And it is a severe, difficult drought. Let me ask you a question. You think that's the first drought they ever experienced? You see, that's the only time that they didn't go through periods when it hadn't rained? Was it really all that singular and different? Were all those other droughts associated with Israel's disobedience? Were they all because the children of Israel didn't do what they were supposed to do? Further, how many people do you think would have been aware of the teaching of Deuteronomy chapter 11? Joshmo Israelite, who the priests are no longer teaching 
the word of God. They're no longer gathering at the temple. They are worshiping in the high places. They have had the word of God removed from them. We've already seen that generations ago. We're into generations now in Israel. I submit to you that a handful of Israelites would have even been aware of the teaching of Moses and what he had said. They were ignorant. They were in the dark. So the confusion on the one hand is understandable. You, you can understand that there are factors at work here in which the average unspiritual Israelite is scratching his head at the different voices that he is hearing and saying, what's the truth? What's the truth here? Who, who has the truth? Who can know? How can you know? Thus the need for the contest. And while I submit to you that the confusion was understandable, it also was unexcusable. For while they may not have been able to ascertain all the details, the, the one thing that, that they should have known is that there is a true God, and this true God is in control of all things. They should have known that. They should have been aware of that. They should understand that this was ultimately under God's control. And actually, everything else is a red herring. It's not about Elijah. And it's not about Ahab. It's about God. Who did this? God did this. There was a reason. But God did this. Now, why the long buildup? Well, because, again, I have another question. Is there anything for us to learn from this passage that is here? Is there any relevance for us today? As we enter into looking at this context next week, I say to you, is it possible that God's people are sitting on a fence? Is it possible that even in our own hearts and minds, we are confused about what God does and doesn't do. And perhaps it's negatively impacting our worship. Let me, let me unpack that for you. I'm always amazed when I am in a portion of Scripture just working through a text, how often it coincides with events that are taking place and headlines in the news. This week, there was a catastrophic hurricane that took place in Florida and other regions. What should we think about that? This hurricane that wiped out and devastated not just Florida, but islands and horrific. Does a text like this have anything to do at all 
an event such as that. Well, we must exercise extreme caution in making proclamations and pronouncements about what God is doing in current events as we read the scriptures. That is fraught with great danger. However, within that framework of caution, there are things that we can assert. And assert in very important ways. One thing we can say with absolute certainty that most people in our culture, in our society, won't say. Okay, Here's what distinguishes us as the people of God. One thing we can say with certainty that most people in our culture will not say is that this was the work of God. God brought that hurricane. God was in control. As we think of the ultimate causation, as we wrestle with questions of why, et cetera, et cetera, the one thing that we have to assert is that God is in control. He rules the heavens and the earth. He sends and withholds rains. That's who God is. That's what God does. Isaiah 45, 7, our call to worship. I form light, create darkness. I make well-being, create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, we live in a period of time in our society as a nation where we're very uncomfortable with talking about God in that way. In fact, people don't even want to reference God. As you have, so have I, watched a number of newscasts and reports on the flooding that took place these last few days. And there was a phrase that came up time and time again, Mother Nature. Mother Nature. Mother Nature relinquished her. Mother Nature sent forth. Our society has a difficulty in saying God. God. In fact, that is unacceptable. That's not politically correct. There, there are going to be people that are offended if you say God. But you can say Mother Nature, that's okay. Even though Mother Nature has a pagan connotation of religious background, but of course, all that's forgotten. And it's okay to talk about Mother Nature. It's not okay to talk about God. I submit to you that's a shift. That's a shift. And there is an antiquated way in which our society still recognizes God over the events of this world, and especially catastrophes. And that is <clears throat> still in most insurance policies. For homeowners insurance, there is a, a clause for acts of God. How many have heard that phrase? Okay, acts of God. And let me just read to you a quote from the website of uh, Hartford Insurance Company. Hartford Insurance Company. Their website on homeowners insurance. I quote, what is an act of God in insurance terms? 
Disastrous events can happen when you least expect them. When they're outside of human control, they're described as an act of God. The phrase act of God refers to an accident or other natural event caused without human intervention that could not have been prevented by reasonable foresight or care. For example, insurance companies often consider storms to be an act of God. Fire can also be an act of God if it starts from lightning strikes. However, if it wasn't an act of nature and began from human activity like faulty wiring, it's not considered an act of God. To learn more about what acts of God are covered, get a homeowner's insurance quote from us today. You can also review other important homeowner's insurance terms, and it goes on. Acts of God. Acts of God. Widely held and understood term, but has lost its oomph in general society. I ask you, can anything else be said? Can you go any further than the fact that this was an act of God? Can anything else be said about causation? While I would be hesitant to say that this hurricane is a result of God's judgment, I would definitely say that it came from God. I wouldn't want to go so far as to say why, but I would say it came from God. So what else can be said concerning catastrophes and the word of God? I would say this. We can definitely say that as we get closer to the Lord's return, catastrophes will increase in number and in intensity. Matthew chapter 24, verses 7 and 8 say, For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pains. It says the Lord's not coming yet, but they precede his coming. They are signs. They, they show the fact that the Lord is in control and the Lord is going to return. As records are being sent, set and disasters are said to be increasing in their frequency, I submit to you that that should not be surprising to us. As Christians, we should expect that there will be an increase in disasters in their number and their intensity, for that's what the Word of God says. So as you listen to the news, and you're hearing about frequency and intensity in an alarming way that is unprecedented, we should welcome that. We should say that's consistent with the scriptures. And it provides us an opportunity to address that very fact. If someone says to you, you know, they're saying things are getting worse and worse. Well, you know, that's what the Bible says will happen. Do you know that it says that the number is going to increase and the intensity is going to get worse? 
as time goes on, and that's very consistent with what the Bible has to say. Is that all we can say? Is that all that we can interact with our fellow neighbors? Well, let's talk about the issues in a fresh way. Let us further talk about causation. As disasters increase in number and intensity, the causation that you will hear constantly is climate change and global warming. Correct? You have heard it time and time again. Climate change and global warming. Now, I plead with you to hear me out, and I plead with you to forget all of the political debates and the whole global warming craziness that people are responding to on both sides. I just simply say this, as Christians, what should our response be? I say to you, here's an opportunity to witness. Here is an opportunity to demonstrate the relevance of the scriptures. Let us consider the gradual rise in global temperatures and simply ask the question, is that consistent with the scriptures? The global temperatures gradually warming. Is that consistent with the scriptures? The Bible says people will scoff in the last days at the Lord's return. 2 Peter 3, 3 to 4, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And then with these words, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. The scoffers say nothing changes, <laughs> nothing happens. Everything is continuing just the way it always has. What if things are not continuing exactly the way they always had? What if God reveals himself in nature? Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So it says things didn't always continue on. There, there was this great flood that took place, of which God bore witness to his power, to his strength, and to his mightiness. Things didn't always continue the way that they were. And it goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then repeated in verse 12, looking for and hasting the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. The scripture says that in God's judgment, 
That judgment is going to be not in the form of a flood this time, but intense heat that's going to devour this earth. That's what the Bible says. The idea that things are getting warmer is consistent with the way that the Bible says the end times will come. All I'm asking this morning is that as Christians, we keep God in our focus. We keep God at the center of our understanding of all that takes place. And in our discussions with our non-believing friends, what a wonderful opportunity is given to us to bear witness to the truth of the scriptures by the very things that they are noticing. Yes. Yes, they are intensifying. Yes, records are being broken. Yes, there are some unprecedented things that are taking place. I'm not saying the Lord's coming back tomorrow. I'm not saying the Lord's coming back in 10 years. I don't know when he's coming back, but I tell you it's consistent with what the scriptures say. It shouldn't surprise us. The fact that things are warming up and it's going to lead to destructiveness is consistent with the scriptures. What an opportunity we have to engage people, not in some political debate, but in the authority and the reliability of the Word of God. Don't miss the opportunity. And most importantly, don't let all the other voices out there distract you and me from acknowledging our God as the one who rules all things and his word that is completely true and honest. You can understand why people are confused today. You can understand even why Christians are saying, what's going on here? How shall I respond? What should I think? And all I'm saying to you is people... We need to keep God in focus, and he's the ultimate causation. He's the ultimate causation. There's a place for these other debates, but he's the ultimate causation. His word is true. We can see it unfolding. We can see that God is bearing witness to himself, which he says he will do. We can see proof of what the Bible says is going to come to pass, even as the children of Israel should have seen the proof, but didn't. That's my concern this morning. 
that we don't be like them and close our eyes to what the Word of God says because of all the other voices. But we take a fresh look at the Word of God and all that's going on around us. In everyday conversations, we have an opportunity to direct people's thinking to God, the one who's in control, the one who reveals himself in nature, the one who's the author of all good, the one to whom we are accountable, the one who provides us with opportunities to turn to him, the one who calls us to repentance, the one who says he is coming back. And he is. And he is. And so my final plea this morning is to anyone here who has never accepted Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Lord is returning. And when he returns, there's going to be a judgment. There's going to be an accounting. And for all those who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, all those who accepted Jesus as their Savior, will not experience his judgment, for he bore all the consequences for our sin himself. But if you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, this coming judgment is a terrible thing. And maybe, just maybe, you've been sitting on the fence. And you have heard the gospel many times. And yet, for some reason you have never declared yourself, for some reason you have never made a choice, for some reason you've just kind of limped along, as the text says, without stopping to consider the claims. Jesus is truly the Savior. He bears witness to himself. I invite you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. And if you have, I encourage us all to use the opportunities that are at our fingertips to speak of God and his word and how he acts consistently with that word. Let us pray. Almighty God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never accepted Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that today would be that day, that you would do a work in their hearts and bring them to yourself, that you would reveal yourself to them in a, in a very demonstrable way. Uh, I imagine virtually everyone in this room has heard the gospel numerous times, but it is not beyond belief to think that there are those that are here that have heard the gospel but never have responded to it. And so this morning I will give you yet another opportunity. If this morning you would like to receive Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I ask that you quickly raise your hand so that I can acknowledge it. I'm not going to call you to come forward. I'm not going to mention you by name. But I want to see that you have made that profession. Anyone here this morning that would like to receive the Lord Jesus as their Savior, would you quickly raise your hand so that I can see it? Our Father, we pray, Lord, help us. Help us to be a people who are not on the fence. Help us to be a people who are not just listening to the voices around us, trivializing the events that are taking place. But Lord, let us see that you are the God of creation. You are the makers of heaven and earth. You rule over all things. Your hand is at work. 
the things that we see take place are in fact your activity. We acknowledge, O God, your control. Lord, not only do we acknowledge your control, but we acknowledge that they are consistent with what your word of God tells us. That we see that you are a faithful God. That you warn us, you teach us, you show us, you tell us that there are signs, you tell us there is an ability to authenticate what your word says. Lord, help us to acknowledge that you are doing just that. So help us to speak of you, to make your word known, to make your will known, to bring a fresh light on the discussion that's taking place around so many dinner tables. Lord, may you be the focus. May you be the great causation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.